Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Norfolk Southern and the other freight rail companies need to stop fighting us every time we try to do a regulation. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has visited East Palestine, Ohio for the first time since a Norfolk Southern train carrying toxic chemicals derailed three weeks ago, blanketing the town with a toxic brew of spilled chemicals and gases. It was 100% preventable. That's what the National Transportation Safety Board says about the accident. We'll go to Ohio for the latest. Presidential candidate Donald Trump was also in East Palestine this week. We'll talk to a union official about how Trump sided with railroad companies to roll back rail safety regulations. Will the Biden administration reverse those rollbacks? Then we go to the occupied West Bank, where Palestinians held a general strike Thursday after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and injured 500 in a rare daytime military raid in Nablus. It is a day of mourning period and a strike. How would we be able to work or eat or drink and our brothers in Nablus are being killed? We should stand in solidarity with them, with the people of Nablus. And there should be a general strike. And thank God the strike is in all the West Bank and Gaza. We'll speak to the Israeli journalist Amira Haas and the Palestinian activist Issa Amro, who was recently beaten by an Israeli soldier while being interviewed by the author Lawrence Wright. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations General Assembly has voted in favor of a resolution condemning Russia over its invasion of Ukraine and demanding Moscow withdraw its forces. Thursday's vote came on the eve of the first anniversary of the war. The result of the vote is as follows. In favor, 141. Against, 7. Abstentions, 32. Draft resolution A-ES-11-L7 is adopted. China, India, and South Africa were among the 32 nations abstaining from Thursday's vote. China's foreign ministry called for an end to sanctions on Russia and for a negotiated end to the war. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, said Thursday's vote showed support for Ukraine's resistance to Russian occupation extends beyond powerful Western nations. This uh, vote uh, defies the argument that Global South does not stand on Ukraine's side, because many countries representing Latin America, Africa, Asia voted in favor today. 
In Moscow, President Vladimir Putin pledged Thursday to strengthen Russia's nuclear forces with the deployment of a new generation of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Putin also promised to speed mass production of air- and sea-based hypersonic missiles and other conventional weapons. Putin's remarks came two days after he said Russia was suspending much of its participation in New START, the last remaining nuclear arms reduction treaty between the U.S. and Russia. President Biden called the move a big mistake. Neither Russia nor the U.S. have signed or ratified the U.N.'s treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. North Korea test-fired four long-range cruise missiles Thursday as part of another drill that Pyongyang says demonstrates its ability to counter an attack on the isolated nation. The test came as the U.S. and South Korea carried out a simulated military exercise in Washington, D.C., and a day after the U.S., Japan and South Korea held a trilateral ballistic missile drill in the Sea of Japan. The war games followed earlier North Korean missile tests on Saturday and Monday. The U.S. will expand its troop presence in Taiwan by more than four times, according to The Wall Street Journal. The Pentagon will reportedly send between 100 and 200 more troops to train the Taiwanese military against the threat of a Chinese invasion or blockade of the island. Iran has acknowledged it's enriched uranium to 84 percent purity for the first time, just below the weapons-grade level of 90 percent. But an Iranian nuclear official dismissed the idea it's part of a weapons program, saying it's a temporary side effect of producing 60 percent purity uranium and calling such accusations a conspiracy against Tehran. Israel's far-right Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has already threatened possible military action against Iran. Meanwhile, Germany's expelled two Iranian diplomats after an Iranian court sentenced a German-Iranian citizen to death earlier this week. Tehran is accusing journalist Jamshid Sharmad, who is also a U.S. resident, of plotting a deadly 2008 bombing and other terrorist activities. The Biden administration's released two more prisoners from the Guantanamo naval base in Cuba. Mohammed and Abdul Rabani, two brothers now in their mid-50s, were repatriated to Pakistan after they were held without charge for two decades. The U.S. accused them of providing low-level logistical support to al-Qaeda, but never provided evidence in a court of law. Both brothers say they were tortured at a secret CIA prison in Afghanistan for about 550 days before they were transferred to Guantanamo in 2004. The U.S. continues to imprison 32 men at Guantanamo. Here in New York, representatives from all 193 U.N. member states are convening in hopes of agreeing on a new treaty to protect the world's oceans and their biodiversity. A round of talks last summer were suspended after participants were unable to reach an agreement on financing, among other issues. Earlier this week, actor and activist Jane Fonda addressed delegates at the U.N. headquarters. This treaty that will lay the groundwork for creating 30 percent of the ocean into marine sanctuaries that cannot be fished in is so important. We have to save these creatures who basically are fighting to save us. They are our strongest allies in the fight against the climate crisis. The ocean is one of our strongest allies. 
Nearly one million customers in the Midwest were left without power amidst freezing temperatures Thursday as a historic winter storm brought extreme weather to most of the United States. About 75 million people in 29 states have faced winter weather advisories. In California, officials in Los Angeles and surrounding counties issued a rare blizzard warning through Saturday. Meanwhile, many southern states are experiencing record heat. Thursday's high temperature in Washington, D.C., topped 80 degrees Fahrenheit, shattering a 150-year-old record for the date. President Joe Biden has nominated former MasterCard CEO A.J. Banga to lead the World Bank. If approved, Banga would be the first-ever Indian-American and first-sick American to lead either the World Bank or the IMF. He previously worked for Nestle, PepsiCo and Citigroup, and now serves as vice chair at the Wall Street investment firm General Atlantic. The anti-corruption group The Revolving Door Project condemned the selection, writing, quote, President Joe Biden and Secretary Yellen have literally named the vice chairman of a rapacious international private equity firm to take his first job ever in public service at nearly the highest level in the world possible. Nothing in Banga's resume inspires confidence that he will turn the World Bank away from a path of neocolonialism and predation by global North corporations upon global South countries, they said. A judge in Texas is expected to issue a ruling as soon as today that could block access to the common abortion medication mifepristone nationwide. Plaintiffs in the case are challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the pill over two decades ago. The move would impact even states like New York and California, where abortion is still legal following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mefepristone is used in more than half the abortions provided by clinics and physicians in the United States. In January, the FDA announced retail and mail-order pharmacies can now sell the abortion pill directly to patients with a prescription. In Florida— a petition seeking to release a pregnant woman from jail argues her fetus is being held in, quote, unlawful and illegal detention, unquote, and being deprived of its due process rights. Natalia Harrell, who's eight months pregnant and charged with murder, also accuses the jail of endangering the fetus by failing to provide proper prenatal and medical care. The filing argues the fetus, quote, is a person under the Florida Constitution and the United States Constitution. So-called fetal personhood laws have been fundamental in the anti-abortion movement. Reproductive rights advocates say recognizing fetal personhood helps strengthen the criminalization of abortion. A new report by the United Nations finds one person dies during pregnancy or childbirth every two minutes, revealing an alarming setback in reproductive health in recent years in nearly all regions of the world. The report tracks these deaths from 2000 to 2020. Europe and North America, as well as Latin America and the Caribbean, had the largest increase of pregnancy or childbirth deaths from 2016 to 2020. But as a whole, these deaths continue to be largely concentrated in the poorest parts of the world and in countries impacted by conflict. In the United States, new research shows childbirth is deadlier for black families, regardless of their socioeconomic background. Black pregnant people and their babies, even when wealthy, are still twice as likely to die than their white counterparts. 
Millions of people around the United States will lose their additional disbursement of federal food assistance starting next week, March 1st. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, had increased benefits as part of the emergency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Households will lose a minimum of $95 a month as families continue to face increased food prices, and data show at least one in eight U.S. kids regularly face hunger. In Los Angeles, Harvey Weinstein was sentenced Thursday to 16 years in prison for rape. The sentence is to be served after his 23-year term stemming from his New York sexual assault conviction, effectively ensuring the one-time Hollywood mogul will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Weinstein's Los Angeles conviction was based on his assault of one survivor, though dozens have accused him of rape and other sexual crimes. Attorney Gloria Allred filed appeals on behalf of two survivors who were denied the right to deliver victim impact statements before the sentencing. You may say, well, isn't it too late he was sentenced today? It's never too late to argue or to assert a constitutional right that we think has been violated. In Chicago, a court sentenced R. Kelly Thursday to 20 years in prison for child sex crimes. But the former R&B star and sexual predator will be able to serve all but one year of that sentence concurrently with a previous 30-year term handed down in New York for racketeering and sex trafficking. A victim impact statement read in court Thursday asked for the longest possible sentence for Kelly that was allowed under the law, with the survivor saying she'll be permanently scarred and that, quote, no amount of therapy will make me normal, she said. And in Alabama, hundreds of striking miners could soon return to work at the Warrior Met Coal Company after nearly two years spent on picket lines. The president of the United Mine Workers of America recently sent a letter to Warrior Met granting the company an unconditional offer to return to work on March 2nd, while the two parties continue to negotiate a new contract. The offer to end the strike came after Warrior Met reported large profits due to the skyrocketing price of coal and after its success successfully use replacement workers to keep its mines running. The union called the strike in April of 2021. It's believed to be the longest in the history of Alabama, a so-called right-to-work state with powerful anti-union laws. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, 100 percent preventable. That's what the National Transportation Safety Board says about the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. We'll go to Ohio for the latest and then to Palestine, Israel and Palestine. Stay with us. All you folks that you own my life You never made a sacrifice Demons there on my trail Standing at the cross the rolls of a hill I look to the left, I look to the right Hands that grab me on the every side Sell that is mine. Think money rules 
when all else fails. Go sell your soul, keep your shell. I'm trying to protect what I keep inside. Crossroads by Tracy Chapman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg finally visited East Palestine, Ohio, Thursday. For the first time since a Norfolk Southern train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed earlier this month, blanketing the town with a toxic brew of spilled chemicals and gases. Buttigieg has faced widespread criticism for his response to the bomb train disaster in East Palestine, where residents fear their health has been put at risk from the spill and a controlled burn of the chemicals. Buttigieg's trip came a day after former President Trump visited East Palestine. Trump criticized President Biden for going to Ukraine this week instead of the site of the train derailment in Ohio. Trump made no mention of why he rescinded an Obama-era rule that would have required more sophisticated brakes on trains carrying hazardous materials. On Thursday, Buttigieg accused Trump of siding with the railroad companies while he was president. They got their way on a Christmas tree of regulatory changes that the last administration made on its way out the door in December of 2020. I think they're getting their way on the fines being too low. I'm sorry, but uh, if the biggest fine we can charge on a violation is $250,000 or, or less, and that's an egregious hazmat violation to get somebody killed, that is not enough for a multi-billion dollar company. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's visit to East Palestine, Ohio, came as the National Transportation Safety Board released a preliminary report on the train derailment, blaming a wheel-bearing failure for the crash. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy described the derailment as 100 percent preventable. But I can tell you this much. This was 100 percent preventable. We call things accidents. There is no accident. Every single event that we investigate is preventable. So our hearts are with you. The Norfolk Southern train that derailed had 141 cars and stretched for two miles. There were just three crew members on board. We're joined now by three guests. Topher Sanders is a reporter at ProPublica covering railroad safety. His new article is headlined, A Norfolk Southern Policy Lets Officials Order Crews to Ignore Safety Alerts. Gregory Hines joins us from Washington, D.C. He's National Legislative Director at SMART, the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail and Transportation Workers. And Emily Wright is on the ground in the East Palestine area, area in Ohio. She's development director for Rivi, River Valley Organizing in Columbiana County. Um, we welcome you all to Democracy Now! Let's start right there on the ground, Emily. A lot of visitors this week, right? You had former President Trump. You had Pete Buttigieg. But the question is, what's actually happening on the ground right now? Can you talk about how people are feeling, what their questions and demands are? Yes, last night we had a, a town hall with independent scientists and environmental legal experts, lawyers, um, and a retired uh, fire chief, Sill, who was um, a hazmat trainer and for decades. And um, people were very, very happy that someone was just listening to them and answering their questions. 
people's questions are, you know, what, what is Norfolk Southern going to do right now to help us? Um, because, you know, a lot of them are involved. We're not doing any type of class action lawsuit or anything like that. We're just offering uh, free legal clinics that are going to be coming up for people to get unbiased advice that is not soliciting. But people are concerned about, do they make decisions now because they don't have the money and they need the money? Do they wait to make decisions? Um, you know, are their families safe? Um, you know, they have 50% of the people that were at the meeting last night raised their hand that they have well water. And at this point, the only um, they're still getting instruction to drink bottled water because they're not completely sure it's safe. So everybody just really wants questions answered. And I think everybody is not really looking at even the high profile visits. They more just want action. Um, you know, we give a lot of people are pointing fingers right now, but everybody is pretty disgusted with everybody. I mean, you talked about how Trump uh, roll back those safety regulations. Then we have two years of the Biden administration where they had a chance to, you know, reinstate those and they didn't. And so people are upset with all political officials right now. They're upset that our governor and our house representative came and took a sip of water in East Palestine as a political stunt. And, um, you know, said the water's safe, but people are waking up in those same area in that same homes with rashes and nausea and asthma symptoms in the morning um, from just being exposed to, you know, all of the surface and, you know, soil contaminants right now. So, you know, there were a lot of people that are visibly upset and um, really feel like, really feel like they're not being represented on you know, all levels, local, state, and federal government. So people are going to be taking action. They're going to be writing letters, making calls. We're going to be, you know, doing more petitions because this is, unfortunately, our safety in Appalachia is something that can change from administration to administration. So what we're going to push for at River Valley, you know, also is change at a congressional level. We need laws made. We need um, things that can't be taken away by executive order or, you know, placed by that. So that's what we're really pushing for is lasting change from this. And it needs to be bipartisan. Um, everybody needs to get at the table with this. So you held a town hall last night. Tonight, I know Aaron Brockovich is holding a meeting who took on PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, what, 30 years ago um, for contamination in California. Um, on Wednesday night, CNN hosted its own town hall meeting in East Palestine. This is one local resident, Jim Stewart, addressing the Norfolk Southern CEO, Alan Shaw. Came Holmes. The other day, I put the garage door up. I got pulled, we pulled in the garage, got out of the car, put the garage down. As soon as we got out of that car, the smell came back to us right away. Instant headache. Now, I'm 65 years old, a diabetic, AFib hearts, heart disease, everything. Now, did you shorten my life now? I want to retire and enjoy it. How are we going to enjoy it? You, you burned me. We were going to sell our house. Our value went poof. You know, I do I mow the grass? Do I can I plant tomatoes next summer? 
What can I do? I'm afraid to. You know, and it's in the air. Every day I cough. Three cough, a little cough here, a little cough there. I've never had that. You know, I, I got rashes on my cheeks and all of my arms from the, from the derail. I don't call it a derailment. I call it a disaster. Emily Wright, um, talk about what people are feeling. I mean, he's diabetic. He's 65 years old. This was um, the participant in the CNN town hall challenging uh, the Norfolk Southern CEO. And what about his presence on the ground, the head of Norfolk Southern, Alan Shaw, who says uh, Norfolk Southern won't be leaving anytime soon? Um, yeah, that 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 statement was almost verbatim, most things we heard last night. This is actually a really good time to highlight something new that's come up. So um, we're all aware that a health clinic was established for these people to go to. So they were told if they have these symptoms after, you know, the burn and the spill to go to the free health clinic. And it was, I believe, through the, you know, the health department, Ohio and um, health department and our own. And this is not a clinic. People are not being treated. This is 100%. I have everything to back this up. But it is a doc. I'm a, just for background, I'm a registered nurse. And um, I've, I've worked in the medical field for 20 years before this. So I can tell you that this is not an actual treatment clinic. This is a documentation and referral station. So there's no doctors. There's no lab tests. So no blood and urine tests. There's no diagnoses. And there's no real assessment. It's just usually a nurse. They have some type of toxicologist that may be there, and they refer you to somewhere. So there's no actual treatment. So these people are not only not receiving that, but we have several people that have come out this week to tell us that home health agencies aren't coming to these homes because they're worried about being exposed. And we have people that are, you know, bedridden, sick. Um, one person, you know, uh, they asked to remain anonymous, but they have a child that is a total, has total care needs and they can't get home health to come out and take care of their child. And it's really been a struggle. So this is, these are real things happening on the ground. And as far as, you know, for Alan Shaw, there's no, there's nothing that he can say that's going to make this better that he's willing to say, because this is what Norfolk Southern does. They come in, they have these things, they poison us they keep it, they try to sweep it under the rug. Um, and they think that we're all just stupid enough here. You know, we're all just hilljack enough to sit back. But I can tell you from the meeting last night that people are very angry and they are ready to take action with not only policy changes, but they're ready to take action and make Nor Norfolk Southern really does pay, not just cleans up, not just gives some money that they actually pay because these people have lost everything, their property value. They don't understand if their homes are safe or not. Like he said about mowing his grass, you know, with dioxin that falls on the ground after these things. We had Stephen Lester talking last night at our town hall about this. Um, and, you know, people are scared. They mow their grass because they're walking outside or in their homes or sitting on their couches and they're noticing that they're feeling shortness of breath or sick because the particulates are coming up. So people are not being properly taken care of, and um, it's not enough. It's a good first step that the EPA forced Norfolk Southern to clean this up right. It's a good step that they're going to monitor that, but it's not enough. It's the first step. 
And instead of finger pointing right now, what I would really like everyone to do is get on the ball of doing immediate change through, you know, this administration and through the transportation department and then working on congressional change because we're tired of the finger pointing. Um, Emily, I want to bring in Gregory Hines, who's National Legislative Director at SMART, the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail and Transportation Workers. So, Greg, this description of this train, we're talking about February 3rd, passed through three temperature sensors as it was going along. Two-mile-long train. Um, the sensors are designed to alert problems like the hot bearing that eventually failed that day. But the only sensor, called a hotbox detector, that registered a sufficiently high temperature to sound the alarm was the one less than a mile from the accident site, according to the NTSB initial report. Um, Two-mile-long train, at least 20 of the cars are uh, filled with toxic chemicals, and there are only three con- uh, workers, engineers, conductors on board. The guy driving the train, a c- conductor, I'm not sure, you'll have to correct me on the titles, and a trainee. How is this possible? As people saw miles before, um, the uh, wheels were on fire. Well, first, let me say that my heart goes out to the people of East Palestine with this terrible accident. And um, the detectors that you speak of, there are no regulations requiring the railroads to have detectors at all. And there are no regulations requiring the railroads to um, calibrate and maintain those detectors. So it's un- you know, we're part of the uh, NTSB investigation, so there's only certain things I can say, but the, uh, the crew is not alerted with any problem from the previous detectors. The detector that did find the problem, it happened pretty close to the same time that the derailment happened. And uh, as far as the crew members, there was a conductor, an engineer, and a trainee. But most all the Class 1 railroads in America currently have a minimum of two people on the crew. And they just happen to have an extra one because they had a trainee. Now, the railroads want to go to single-person crews and then no-people crews. That's their goal. And they fight tooth and nail in Washington, D.C. to not have any additional regulations and to roll back the, the regulations that they do have. I mean, this is astounding. These trains go on for miles. Uh, and aren't they supposed to spend a certain amount of time inspecting each car that has toxic chemicals well, yes, absolutely. There's supposed to be class one brake air tests on, on all the cars. And the railroads have uh, rolled back regulations on doing inspections and air, air brake tests as well. They've laid off 30 percent of their workforce in the last five years. It's all about adhering to the wishes and whims of Wall Street and uh, lowering their operation ratio. The other thing that people aren't talking about as well are the, peop- the employees that they do have. NS recently cut their training program in half, so they only get half the training that they used to get. I mean, they're rolling the dice, all the Class 1 railroads. And and the thing that I would like to highlight is that nothing has changed with the freight railroads in America since this accident happened. They're not taking any action to change anything. The only way they're going to change anything is if they're forced to. 
In fact, a derailment uh, took place uh, outside of Detroit with the same company. Um, uh, let me bring in uh, Topher Sanders uh, to this conversation. Topher is a reporter at ProPublica covering railroad safety. You just wrote this piece in Norfolk Southern Policy, Let's Officials Order Crews to Ignore Safety Alerts. Explain what you found. Give us background on all of this. And also the overall picture of the major uh, railroad conglomerates in the United States. States. There are like seven of them, right? Yes, Amy. Um, yeah, so a uh, team of us reporters at ProPublica started looking into, you know, various aspects of the derailment and uh, the policies and uh, the kind of internal operation rules of Norfolk Southern became very interesting to us. And we were able to, to learn about this one particular uh, policy where uh, some years ago they created uh, something called the Wayside Detector Help Desk. And it's basically uh, a team of personnel that uh, review data coming from these hot boxes that you mentioned earlier. And that team, they're not dispatchers. They're, uh, they kind of understand data and they understand uh, some of the workings and the workings of the train. They can make determinations that when crews receive uh, certain alerts from these hot boxes that that crew, if they deem it necessary based on information that they have that's uh, really opaque and unclear based on the policy, they can tell that crew to mush on. They can tell that crew to ignore uh, that alarm that's coming from the hot box or coming from the dragging equipment detector or whatever kind of detector it is and say, continue on because we have information that it otherwise tells us it's safe for you to do so. Um, so let me ask about um, what has been found and the number of derailments that there are. Over the past 20 years, overheated bearings have led to 416 derailments, according to the Federal Railroad Administration data on train accidents. Most have not been nearly as catastrophic as what happened in East Palestine. Is the Federal Railroad Administration able to regulate hotbox detectors? Does it require railroads to d report data on how they perform? Um, and how has the regulation of trains, its direct relation to lobbying in Washington? There is no requirement for uh, the class ones reporting data related to high boxes. All that information, as mentioned earlier by one of your other guests, is kind of held tightly within um, each organization. There's no there's no rules or regulations about having the hot boxes or what those thresholds should be. One of the key things that came out of the preliminary report that I think everyone should pay attention to and, and be very keenly attuned uh, to is the idea that the thresholds that should trigger alarm and concern for a crew on any given class one railroad are wildly different. So on one railroad, that temperature threshold could be X. At another railroad, that temperature threshold could be 20, 30, 40 degrees different. And in this case, they were obviously trending hot. They went from about 60 or so degrees above ambient temperature on that wheel bearing to 100 degrees above ambient on that particular bearing between two detectors before they got to East Palestine. But that, that, that 60 degree change, that 40 degree change, that wasn't enough for, uh, for the uh, Norfolk Southern to determine that that needed to be dealt with at that moment, despite what we all saw on that, that security camera, that there was a fiery glow under the train 20 miles before the derailment. 
And so this, the, the chair of the NTSB uh, forthrightly said that, yes, uh, considering what these thresholds should be and whether or not there needs to be some uniformity around these thresholds on these temperature gauges is definitely something they'll be looking into. Now, Topher, uh, ProPublica has also learned that Norfolk Southern disregarded a similar mechanical problem on another train months earlier um, that jumped the tracks in Ohio, a train that was headed to Cleveland. What happened? Um, what happened in the city of Sandusky, where, dozen, where thousands of gallons of some kind of molten paraffin wax was dumped? Yes, that's candle wax, uh, by the way. And it was uh, molten at the time, so it would have been quite, quite dangerous, catastrophic had that actually made contact with anyone when it derailed. So what happened there was the wayside desk, as it was explained to us, actually receiving data about the same kind of issue. They saw something trending hot on the train, a wheel trending hot, a bearing trending hot. They did instruct that train to stop, but they brought out a mechanic to review the issue and see what was going on. And surprisingly, they were able to look at this train, something that had a trending hot mechanism, and they told this crew to mush on. After they did stop the train or look at it, they said, okay, mush on. We're having some indication that maybe that's not what the crew wanted to do. And they went four miles down the track and derailed and, and spilled thousands of gallons of hot molten paraffin wax onto the city of Sandusky after uh, data was given to them that maybe should have indicated that they needed to take that engine out of commission and uh, for at the abundance of caution and safety, that's the move that should have taken place based on the experts and the union officials that we've spoken to. So, Greg Hines, um, you're with the union. Um, I want to talk more about the workers, the rail strike um, that just was threatened and uh, by the administration or President Biden signing off on a law that says that they couldn't strike, what their issues were then. And if you see any relation uh, to what's happening right now, and um, specifically when it comes to East Palestine, um, uh, where you have these three workers uh, who are on the train, what you think needs needs to happen. The Republicans are having a heyday right now. They're saying, of course, this happened under Biden. Buttigieg Biden didn't go there. But Trump went. It was Trump who signed off on a deregulation of the trains, caving to the lobbyists. Could Biden in one fell swoop just reverse what Trump did and go back to the Obama-Biden administration rules that were supposed to go into effect, sadly, from 2014 this year in 2023? Well, all, all of the, uh, the waivers that were put forward during the Trump administration should be looked at, the ones that were granted, many of them within minutes of being asked for. And the, the two-person crew rule which was the minimum staffing rule, was done during the uh, Obama administration, and it was ready to be released at the end of uh, his term. The Trump administration came in. He uh, appointed a retired railroad CEO to head up the FRA, who decided that we don't need any regulations on crew staffing, and uh, just basically got rid of, of the, the entire rulemaking. And not only that— but he said by FRA taking no action on crew staffing, we're going to preempt all the states who have passed two-person crew laws, meaning that we're not going to do anything about it and we're not going to allow any of the states to do anything about it. 
the current administration has revisited the uh, crew staffing rule. It's already had its public comment period. It's already had a hearing, and there were over 13,000 comments uh, submitted. They've taken all that information in, and they're going to be releasing a uh, crew staffing rule. But I, I agree with you that all the regulations waivers that have been granted through, through the Trump administration should all be reevaluated. And what about the threatened strike, uh, especially around issues of, like, um, sick days that railroad workers—and this is in the time of the pandemic—can't take off sick days? Well, it's, it's still that way. And, and uh, as far as the strike goes, it was never about money. It was about quality of life and safety because of this business model that the railroads are running and operating under, which they just want to cut precision scheduled railroading. They don't want to allow people to take time off. They want to uh, work you to the end of, uh, over and over again. They find loopholes in the hours of service so that people never get time off. And and our members were just, we can't live like this. We, we can't live like this. We're gone from our families all the time. If we have a, a problem in our home, we can't take off without the threat of being fired. I mean, it's really a strong arm system. And the strike was never about money. It was about safety and quality of life. Finally, 30 seconds back to Emily Wright on the ground in Columbiana County, where East Palestine is. What you're demanding right now? Um, we're demanding first that the Norfolk Southern Corporation, um, you know, basically pay and not just pay for this, but change the practices in every way. Um, like Greg was just discussing, it's absolutely, you know, ridiculous. Um, the staffing, there's no need. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation. They're have posted no record profits this year. Record profits. And two, we're demanding we're demanding policy change. We don't care the the letter behind your name. We're demanding policy change now, and we're also demanding congressional move on this so we have lasting changes. Emily Wright, we want to thank you for being with us, Development Director for River Valley Organizing in Columbiana County, Ohio. Greg Hines, National Legislative Director at SMART, the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail and Transportation Workers. And Topher Sanders will link to your pieces at ProPublica as you continue to cover railroad safety. Coming up, we go from East Palestine to Palestine, to the occupied West Bank, where Palestinians held a general strike Thursday after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and injured five. 500. Stay with us. March by the Palestinian band, the Trio Gibran. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we go now to the occupied West Bank, where Palestinians held a general strike Thursday after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians, injured 500 in a rare daytime military raid in the city of Nablus Wednesday. It is a day of mourning period and a strike. 
How would we be able to work or eat or drink and our brothers in Nablus are being killed? We should stand in solidarity with them, with the people of Nablus. And there should be a general strike. And thank God the strike is in all the West Bank and Gaza. So far this year, Israel's killed at least 65 Palestinians, including 13 children. Early this morning, a 22-year-old Palestinian man named Mohammed Jawabra died a day after being shot in the head during an Israeli raid on the Arub refugee camp north of Hebron. On Thursday, Palestinians held funerals for the victims of uh, Israel's raid in Nablus. One victim was a 72-year-old Palestinian man named Adnan Barra. His son, Ashraf, said that his father was on his way to the market when he was killed. In the morning, my father went out from the shop to buy some stuff. Then the Israeli army raided the neighborhood. He called me and asked me if there are soldiers in the neighborhood, so I told him yes. They are surrounding the neighborhood from all sides. Suddenly, someone called me and said, your father is injured. I was at my shop besieged. I could leave the shop after the army left the city. We're joined now by the Israeli journalist Amira Haas, the Haaretz correspondent for the occupied Palestinian territory. She's based in Ramallah. Her latest piece is headlined, Israel's raid on Nablus proves willingness of more young Palestinians to die in an unwinnable battle. Amira Haas is the only Israeli Jewish journalist to have spent 30 years living in and reporting from Gaza and the West Bank. We're also joined by the Palestinian activist Isa Amro. He's in Hebron. He's the founder of the Hebron-based Direct Action Group Youth Against Settlements, now leads the American charity Friends of Hebron. Um, let's begin with you, uh, Isa. Uh, you're in Hebron. We just uh, reported on a killing of an Israeli, uh, of a Palestinian uh, man there. Uh, can you talk about what's happening and what happened in this rare daytime raid in Nablus that where so many Palestinians were killed and hundreds injured? Yes. Uh, two days ago, the military forces raided Nablus during the daytime. And they shot uh, uh, many, many Palestinians. Uh, they used live ammunition to kill, to shoot, to confirm the killing of uh, many Palestinians. The Palestinians all over West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem were very uh, sad. And uh, they announced a strike yesterday. And yesterday, clashes started in uh, Al Arub refugee camp in Hebron. The Israeli soldiers shot uh, a Palestinian on the head, and many others were uh, injured. And unfortunately, he passed away this morning, and today it was his uh, funeral. There is a, a huge anger among the Palestinians from what is happening these days from the Israeli uh, racist uh, and fascist uh, government who are inciting to kill more and more uh, Palestinians. We see that uh, the Ibrahimi Mosque massacre, which happened 29th, uh, 20, uh, 29 years ago, where when Baruch Goldstein went into the mosque and killed uh, 29 Palestinians and the supporters of that massacre, the supporters of Baruch Goldstein, they are the ones who are in power. They are in the government. They are the ones who are now leading the Israeli occupation forces all over West Bank and East Jerusalem. Amir Haas, um, you wrote in detail about what is happening in Nablus. And, you know, you've taught in, in New York, for example, at NYU as well. And uh, if you can explain to an audience outside, uh, around the world, what are the details of this attack from the drones that open fire uh, to the unmarked cars? Explain why—just um, give us the picture of Nablus. Yeah. 
uh, hi, hi, Amy. Um, I haven't been in, in Nablus after the raid. I was in uh, Nablus in an, uh, after an, uh, uh, an earlier raid and in Janine. So the pattern is, is, there is one pattern very clear that an Israeli undercover unit enters a Palestinian, mostly Janine and Nablus. Uh, in a car disguised as some Palestinian uh, a food company or something like that. They enter, they, they, uh, they uh, um, uh, find positions, shooting positions around a house where they believe uh, that some Palestinian uh, armed activists uh, stay. And usually this is correct. And then they are supposed to tell, to, to, to ask them to, um, or to demand them leave. And if they refuse, they keep shooting until the people are being killed in their uh, in their hiding place or not hiding place. It happened in Janine. It happened in Janine. In, 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 it has been happening a lot over the years. But there is an intensific- intensification of this uh, during the last uh, the last year. Um, you know, when the Palestinian armed activists decide to give themselves in. It might not end up in so many in so many casualties, but the thing is that you you see that these youngsters, it's people who are uh, not older not older than thirty at most, very often younger. They just decide that they don't want to go to prison. Uh, they 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 want to 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 convey a message in the name of the entire Palestinian people that they have had enough. And they are ready to die, and I think this is this is a very uh, a clear message of the last uh, of those activists, armed activists over the past years. Over the past year, uh, out of the eleven people killed in Naples, six were armed people. So I think we should remember this: that they decide to take arms and to fight the invading army. They decide not to give themselves in. And uh, but of course, when the army decides to enter a city so, so big as Nablus uh, on daytime at nine nine thirty, and then stay there till twelve twelve thirty when all the kids go back from school, and to be near the mar- a, a, a marketplace, it's clear that the army and the police, because it's mostly the police that does the shooting. Uh, I mean, in that in these cases, uh, it's clear that they decide to. They don't care about how many people uh, they kill and how many people they injure. Because so the, this roads is, uh, are, the roads are packed because this is in the middle of the day and people are going to market. Sure, it's packed. It's it's then the drones. I don't know yet. This is something that I still have to check. Uh, there were drones as they were in Janine and Nablus in former raids. But uh, but I'm not sure yet that these drones were shooting. But the fear, even the very knowledge that those drones not only are surveillance drones or drones that that, that launch tear gas canisters, but uh, or tear gas, but they can also shoot. You can imagine how much it adds to the um, uh, to the fear. But it, there is not only fear. If if there are enough uh, footage, though they don't allow ambulances and 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 uh, journalists to approach the place, and this has been so for very for several raids already. But still, from the little footage that I saw. Maybe there is more. You see that there are uh, hundreds of young men or tens of young men so brave that they go out without arms, only with stones, 
and uh, throw at the uh, Israeli at the military vehicles. Uh, and I guess that many of them were, were injured, if not killed. So... Um, Uh, let me go this to, time. Let me go to Isa Amro. No, no, so what's important to oh. know, so what's important is to also stress that there is a resistance. So in every such raid, people resist it. It's not just, you know, uh, 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 um, a, a quiet scene where all of a sudden the army comes in. It comes into a, an, an quiet scene, but then people resist it. So Isa Amro, um, An Israeli soldier was recently jailed for 10 days after he attacked you. As you were being interviewed by the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Lawrence Wright, I want to play a short clip of what happened. Hey! Leave him! I want an ambulance. What's the matter with you, guy? Are you so bored? After video of the attack uh, on you went viral, Israel's far-right national security minister, Itmar Ben-Gavir, uh, who's been convicted uh, on inciting racism charges, expressed full support for the Israeli soldier who attacked you. Describe the scene and what happened. Uh, what happened that I lead uh, tours in my own uh, city to show uh, Israelis, internationals, Palestinians, the reality of the Israeli occupation, the real peace of the Israeli occupation in my own city, the closed streets, the closed markets, the checkpoints, the, the settlers' presence in the middle of my own city. There are streets where I'm not allowed to walk as a Palestinian, in spite that I was born there and I was uh, raised there and I, all my childhood was there. So me and uh, Mr. Wright, I wa he was walking on the main street and I was walking on the graveyard because I'm not allowed to walk on the main street. And, uh, you know, a, a Belgian photographer was with Mr. Wright. I was speaking to Mr. Wright, showing him the reality, closed shops, closed markets, and how few uh, Palestinian families, they use the back door to get into their homes because the main door is uh, is closed. The, the soldiers didn't like that. Usually they don't want us to uh, show the reality of the Israeli occupation, especially to uh, internationals. So the soldier approached me and asked me to leave and not talk to them. Uh, I really told the soldier, no, I'm allowed and uh, I don't have time. Okay, Lawrence, we will meet where we are allowed to meet. Then I reached the point where I'm allowed to, to meet uh, Lawrence and the Belgian photographer. I found the soldier forcing the Belgian photographer to delete her video, which she, she filmed. So I told him, no, I'm allowed. What are you doing? We are allowed to film this. And uh, according to the military law, the tiny rights we have as Palestinians in the military law, we are allowed to do it. So the soldier got very angry. How come I tell him that I'm allowed? He, you know, uh, caught me from my shoulder, you know, violently detained me in, in, the, in the street. And, uh, you know, threatened me, intimidated me. Then he came, caught me from my throat, throw me to the ground and kicked me again and hit me again. Uh, other soldiers, you know, took him away from me because of the camera. And it's not a rare incident. It's the case of all the Palestinians who are living under the Israeli occupation and apartheid and face the Israeli soldiers' brutality and the settler violence. Then I asked for a, an ambulance. I didn't get Uh, soldiers were rejoicing with the settlers for what happened 
to me, uh, sitters were spatting on me when I was on the ground and I was really ill-treated, traumatized, and I was in pain asking for help, and nobody helped me from the Israeli side. I hate to keep traumatizing you further, but I wanted to ask you about the Israeli authorities arresting you last year, shortly after you posted a video showing an Israeli soldier throwing an Israeli activist to the ground and then punching them in the face in the city of Hebron uh, in the occupied West Bank. Before you were released, you were beaten at the police station, your home raided. Uh, The Israeli activist, Miko Peled, tweeted, uh, Issa's life is in danger, and there must be guarantees to his personal safety. Miko Peled is the son of the legendary Israeli general, Mahi Peled. Um, talk about that. Yes. Now, Miko Peled is receiving online death threats, too, for doing this kind of uh, things. Yes, last November, the same case as uh, last week, what happened with me, Israeli soldier punished an Israeli visitor who tried to apologize for Palestinian families who were attacked by fanatic extreme Israeli settlers. And I found another soldier I mean, saying that Itamar Bingvir will, t- will make an order here and he will get rid of you. Filming that made me a target. And uh, the Israeli media described me as a provocator. As last week, they, they, they didn't blame the soldier for what he did to me. They blamed me for filming. They blamed me from reporting. This is the case of many other a human rights defender. Israel tries to hide the truth. They don't want us to report. They don't want us to document the human rights violation. With my case, the soldier attacked me. The Israeli army spokesperson lied about what happened with me. The Israeli official, Itamar Bingvir, who is the national security minister, backed up the soldier and gave a green light to other soldiers to shoot and kill and uh, attack Palestinians and attack me. The Israeli media described me as a provocator and the Israeli public didn't defend me and they didn't denounce the uh, Israeli soldiers' behavior in the, in, uh, one week ago and in last November. So the soldiers, they have a real uh, an environment and atmosphere of uh, incitement and escalation and, you know, they want to be really, uh, you know, following Itamar Bingvir and other uh, populists to, to, to show Palestinians more brutality and, you know, to revenge from uh, a Palestinian human rights defender who document the human rights violation. And really, I, I'm, I have fear of my life from what I see from the Israeli soldiers and the backup from the army and the backup from the government and even the backup of the, from the Israeli uh, media, which is giving the soldiers excuses for what they are doing. You know, what happened me... with me, so it was so obvious on videos, but the Israeli media lied about it and the Israeli army lied about it. Uh, is, um, Amira Haas, I, we're going to end with you. Um, you have the attack on novelists. You hear what Issa is describing. You've got Israel's military bombing parts of the Gaza Strip after Palestinian militants fired rockets at southern Israel um, this week, um, with the novelist raid being a huge provocation. Where is this going? We have 30 seconds. Oof, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, everything that was this, has been described here has happened before. But the, the, and Troisa as well, uh, on, also under former uh, governments. The problem that now, and Israel has always ex- ex- was experimenting after the Nakba with um, um, sorts of expulsion. What I'm afraid now is that we have uh, uh, the strongest people in this present Israeli government are uh, politicians of the right wing who have openly advocated for mass expulsion of Palestinians. It's Smotrich and Ben Gvir. They are the strongest. 
and if you go to Hebron where Issa lives, Amira, then it is the... the we're going to have okay. to leave it there, but I thank you both for being with us. Amira Haas, um, Haaretz correspondent, and Issa Amra.